Hello and welcome to the Culture Watch podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Speaking for Him. My name is Andrew Gomison and it is my privilege each and every week to be your host. I'm so glad that you have taken the time to listen this week and I hope that you will be encouraged. The reason that I do the Culture Watch podcast is because we are called to be in this world and even though we are called not to be of it, God wants us to be active and present as we live our lives. And one of the things that we can do by considering these stories from a biblical perspective is to have a biblical answer when people ask us for hope. This world is very hopeless in a lot of ways, and we have the hope, and that hope is Jesus. And so my my prayer as we look through these stories is that we will be able to share with others the biblical perspective on these important issues and bring them to the only one with the answers, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So without further ado, let's get into news for the week of February 5th. Well, we're going to start today in Washington, D.C. with a surprising story that came out of the National Prayer Breakfast. I've got something else a little weird that I want to leave our viewers no. with. Um, okay, this good. is President Joe Biden <laughs> at the National Prayer Prayer Breakfast. He stopped himself after he said a little bit of a bleep. Watch. What? We really go at one another. But remember, let's remember who the hell we, who we are. We're the United States of America. It's all about dignity and respect. So let's practice it. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. I love that he tried to change, Emily, the word hell. It seemed like he wanted to change it to hell real quick, as if that makes Hello. sense. Hello. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yep. We all got what he meant. Um, yeah, not surprised by that. I mean, I'm, we usually need a... What's it called when you have the translator thing on the bottom for him? Yeah, it's really, I mean, yeah, yeah. so like Elmo, bring us together, he says, prayer breakfast, bring us together. He could model the behavior he's advocating for. This story is some serious deja vu. And what I mean by that is just last week, as I was reflecting on the state of the state address from our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, I noted that she swore several times during the administration of that state of the state address. If you recall, her initial campaign slogan had a swear word in it. We've come a long way from being a society where it was downright illegal to swear in front of women and children to a society where the highest officials of our land have no problem swearing while they are fulfilling their official duties. Now, in some ways, I'm, I'm actually surprised that there still is a national prayer breakfast and I guess for what it's worth, that is not a bad thing. But I do wonder if Joe Biden really acknowledges or even understands the power of prayer. Because nothing he has done in his administration 
points to any understanding of who God is and who it is that actually answers prayer. But above and beyond that, we have two examples in Gretchen Whitmer and Joe Biden of people who do not understand the example that they set. They are our leaders. They are the ones that we are supposed to look to for an example and for compassion and for answers as we navigate this life in this country that we call America. And part of responsibility and part of having liberty, as I have talked about a lot, is taking responsibility for your actions and using your liberty to do the thing that is best for those around you. We are told in Galatians, use not your liberty to serve yourself or to be selfish, to paraphrase, but rather by love serve one another. In other words, the world would say you have liberty to do whatever you want, so just do it and don't pay any attention to how it affects other people. And God is calling us to the higher standard of saying, yes, everything you do affects other people, so do it wisely. Conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of following because you will be followed. Paul understood this when he said in his epistle, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul was not claiming to be perfect. Paul admitted freely that he was not perfect. But what he was saying is, I know that you're looking to me for an example. So in so much as you see me following Christ, follow me. And there's nothing more comforting than having a leader that you know you can follow confidently. A lot of times we say, and justifiably so, that we should not look to sports stars as our example or as someone to follow. But the fact that so many people do follow sports stars and look to them as an example and are very entranced by them makes me very glad for people like Kirk Cousins and Brock Purdy and Jim and John Harbaugh who realize that they have a platform because of the sport they love and they use it to spread God's word and his love to others and to share how important he is to them. C.J. Stroud is another one of those who has continued to shine for Jesus. When he was with Ohio State, I shared a clip of his, even though I don't like the Buckeyes, because he was at a post-game press conference giving glory and honor to God. And every interview that I've seen of him since he's been with the Texans, he gives glory and honor to God. I have mad respect for someone like that. And I think this is a good testimony to us to think about our lives and to think about the kind of example we are being. Are we going to be a Gretchen Whitmer or a Joe Biden? Or are we going to instead be a Brock Purdy or a Kirk Cousins? Those are two very distinct sides that we need to choose. Because unlike what Charles Barkley once said, you are a role model. No matter who you are, someone is looking to you as an example. And that can be sobering to think about, 
And maybe in your small corner of the world, you don't feel like that's the case, but it is. And so if I can encourage you in one thing, I would encourage you to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to encourage others around you to do the same. Our next story is one from Connecticut. Boys vent frustration over products for menstruation. So should we demand an apology from boys who know basic biology? Connecticut teenage boys, aren't they all, ripped down a tampon dispenser just 20 minutes after it was installed in their high school bathroom. Which raises the question, why did it take so long? The boys' tampon vending machine, and let's pause to appreciate the beauty of that wording, was installed as part of a new state law that calls for free menstrual products in at least one men's bathroom in every high school. In an email obtained by a Connecticut news site, the principal expressed his deep disappointment, quote, I am aware that the law says men's bathroom, but the actions today were the work of immature boys, not men. This is the most egregious instance of vandalism. It generally only happens in boys' bathrooms. You think? That's rich. This is the most egregious instance of vandalism? No, it's the most heroic. Fact is, they are boys. Also... that these boys are not men while pretending that girls are boys, I think you've lost all credibility on this topic. So let me get this straight. I completely agree with Greg Gutfeld here. How can you say that these boys were boys and not men when you don't even know what a man is? You literally or at least for the sake of political expediency, believe that anyone can be a man, that they can just make this declaration and choice, that all it means is an outer construct, and that there's nothing intrinsically male or female about anyone. And yet you're going to call out these boys for not being man enough to not vandalize this property. And you're going to compare this vandalism to much more egregious vandalism that happens. These boys didn't just trash a bathroom to trash a bathroom. They were making a point. And, you know, there's so many things that happen because we're on a slippery slope that people told us we would never be on. You know, we went from having civil unions be okay to having homosexual marriage be okay to having the transsexual uh, lifestyle be okay to having it be something that everyone has to accept. Unless you think I'm just spouting nonsense. I have literally seen videos where homosexual people have said, if I knew where my homosexual activism was going to lead, I never would have advocated for my homosexual marriage. I don't agree with their lifestyle, but I certainly can respect that view. This is what I've talked about on many occasions about many different issues 
is the fact that nothing we do is in a vacuum. And everything we do comes with a price. And everything we do leads to other things that we do. You can't do one thing and say that's not going to affect anything else in the future. Because that is not the world in which we live. That is why God says let each esteem other better than themselves. And he says let everything be done decently and in order. And what we have today is we have a society where selfishness reigns supreme. And we have chaos because there is no decent and in order way of life. We can't judge people on the content of their character because we don't even know what good character means because we have neglected the moral standard. And this is where we find ourselves. I was reminded once again recently of that young boy who claimed to be a girl and so was allowed to use the girl's restroom and he raped a girl in his school. And rather than his feet being held to the fire and him being held criminally responsible for that act, he was moved to another school. The father of the girl in question was castigated for making a stand for his daughter and then the young boy did it again. Only after the second time was he jailed for his actions. And he was actually tried and found guilty in the court of law for both of them, I do believe. But this is what you do when you adapt the mindset of judges, where it says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The Proverbs say there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, in our sinfulness, we cannot attain to order by ourselves. Even the Old Testament law shows us that. The Bible says in Galatians that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. God proclaimed the Old Testament law to show the Israelites that they could not live a perfect life. So that when Jesus came, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, they realized that they could trust him for salvation. See, Jesus said, unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. But we also read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So you see, Jesus came to fulfill the law because you and I have no capacity to fulfill the law. We are not able to be perfect. We are not able to even be close to perfect. And it's important to note here that God did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Spiritually speaking, I wasn't barely holding my head above water before I met Jesus. 
Rather, I was a spiritual corpse on the bottom of the ocean, and Jesus dove in face first and came to the bottom of the ocean and pulled me up and breathed into me new spiritual life. Paul said it this way, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's the power of God. And that's how we live a life of liberty that is good for all around us when we embrace the fixed moral standard of truth found only in the Word of God. And the Word of God says that He made them male and female for His glory. We were made to manifest God's glory and to show forth His divine creativity. God didn't make a mistake when He made you. He knew exactly what He was doing. So be encouraged by that today and please pray for these boys in Connecticut that God will keep them safe and that he will be their rear guard as they go through this trial. Now, I don't know if they're believers in Jesus, but I venture to guess that they've had a solid upbringing from their folks. And so I just want to applaud them and to encourage us to look for ways that we can take a stand for the Lord Jesus ourselves. The next story that I want to bring you to is another one out of D.C., and this has to do with the squad, and we've talked about them before. House lawmakers just passing a bill banning Hamas terrorists from entering the U.S. and receiving relief aid. Seems logical, right? Why do we even need a bill for that? But squad Democrats Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush, yep, voted against it. Congresswoman Tlaib says the bill is, quote, just another GOP messaging bill being used to incite anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian and anti-Muslim hatred that makes communities like ours unsafe. Former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee joins me now. Your reaction to this, Governor? You know what makes uh, communities unsafe, Todd? Having people who go in and mutilate, slaughter, and savagely kill innocent civilians while they're waking up on a Shabbat morning in Israel. That's what makes them unsafe. These people are idiots. There's no other way to put it, and it's disgraceful what they did. My reaction is, if this is uh, going to be allowed and these people are staying in Congress, I want George Santos back. I want him back. Bring him back and let him stay, because if these two people can continue to serve in the United States Congress, then George Santos is a vast improvement. So are you calling for these two to be expelled? I think they should. I mean, this is disgraceful. When you get out and support terrorist activity and pretend that it really wasn't a big deal, well, it was a big deal. It continues to be a big deal. There are still 
American hostages being held by Hamas. I want to hear these uh, women come out and demand the release of those hostages, uh, all of them. But my gosh, they're Congress uh, people from the United States. Don't they even want their own hostages back? The people who are U.S. citizens? Could they at least give us that? But they don't. It's it's sickening. This should be we should all be rowing in the same direction on this one. And the fact that we're not is so mind numbing. And it really does raise a lot of question about those two individuals, but also the Democrat Party. Okay, so lest we need the primer. If you are elected to represent the United States of America, what is the one thing that you do upon assuming office? You swear an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States in matters both foreign and domestic. And part of that is to support our allies. And Israel has been one of our greatest allies. And so anyone who does not support Israel should not be in the position of being a leader in our country. Here's the bottom line, folks. The Bible says that if you bless Israel, you will be blessed. If you curse Israel, you will be cursed. And so we need to realize, looking through history, that it does not bode well for someone who does not support Israel or for a society who does not support Israel. We need to realize that supporting Israel is an important component of peace. The Psalms tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Paul said that he would give up his salvation if it meant that all Israel could be saved. Of course, he's speaking in hypotheticals because he knows that's not possible. But that is how much he loved the nation of Israel, even though, keep this in mind, He had that position even though he was called to the Gentiles. And he definitely had a burden for them too, as you can see in his epistles to the Romans and Galatians, etc. He was faithful to his calling, but it did not diminish his love for Israel. And I think that's an important distinction. And I think as Bible-believing Christians, we need to love Israel as well. Israel is still God's chosen people. He's still going to work through them. He still has an ultimate goal for them in the picture of the end times. So we need to continue to pray for them. I think I'm going to pray for them right now. And we need to continue to pray for God to raise up leaders that will stand with Israel, and that will love and fear the one true God, Jesus. In 2024, we have the opportunity to make our voices heard and to raise up people that have a moral standard, as we've been talking about, and want to uphold it in the different facets of society. So that we're not constantly scratching our heads and saying, why is life chaos? The reality is life is chaos because the one who said, let everything be done decently and in order and told us how to do it 
is not being honored and is being shunned and downright ignored. That is the bottom line. Well, it's sad that I have to do this, but since I've been talking about the Lions for some time now, and I've shared with you clips from the end of their two playoff victories, and I've been very excited about them and just ecstatic to witness this Lions uh, season this year. I have to talk about Sunday when the Lions lost in the NFC Championship to the 49ers. I want to first applaud the Lions on a great season. I'm excited for the future. I hope that you build on what you did this week and don't take five steps back as Wayne Fonts did with the Lions when they went to the NFC Championship. And even though I fought the label of same old Lions, like every week I would see the Lions pull out wins um, and then occasionally they would lose. Fortunately, they never lost two in a row the whole season, which was an amazing feat in and of itself. But even during some of the winning streaks, people would comment that they were kind of the same old Lions and they, they weren't impressed even though it was a win. And I got kind of frustrated by that. But this NFC Championship really enforced that stereotype because they did what they have done so many times when I was growing up. They got out to a huge lead. They were up 24-7 to at the half, and they ended up losing 34-31 to the Niners because in a phrase that I like to use, they folded like an empty wallet in the second half. And to me, that was the most frustrating thing about it was I thought that they should have won that game. They had everything in place to do that. You're supposed to go to halftime and say, how can we keep doing what we're doing? What do we need to do better in the second half to make sure that we keep doing what we're doing? And it felt like the 49ers did that and the Lions failed in that regard. But even though we lost... I feel very happy about the season. I'm very grateful for the coach that we have in Dan Campbell who wants to win, who wants his players to play at a high level, who has at the very least taught them to never give up. There were so many games this year where they would have lost in previous iterations of this team if they there was previous coaches. They just kind of would have laid down and died, but for Dan Campbell, they kept running through walls. The most impressive game was probably against the Bears uh, when they were down by like 17 or so with four minutes to go and they came roaring back. It was an amazing thing because I remember I couldn't watch the game because we didn't have Fox. So I was watching the score and it got to a point where it didn't seem that they could come back. And so I just kind of stopped watching, figured I would check in on the score and see what it was when the time hit zero. And I was just bracing and preparing for a loss. And then I went to check the final score 
and they were all of a sudden up with just a few seconds to go. And I remember telling my dad, the Lions are going to win. They're in the lead, and there's just a few seconds left. They're going to pull this off, and he didn't believe me. And then he checked the score, and he was very happy as well to find that they won. And those are the kind of games that Detroit has been in for years and years and years. For a lot of the years that I've been a fan, they've been a great team on paper. They've been in position to win games against teams that maybe even they weren't supposed to win. And then it's like there was some kind of mental block that came up to them and said, you're winning, you shouldn't be winning. And then they would collapse and, as I often say, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And I'm so glad that for the most part, the Lions didn't do that this year. Um, and they may have regressed a little bit on the NFC Championship, but as I said, I hope they build on that. They're keeping their main assistant coaches in the offensive and defensive coordinator who were rumored to go to NFL jobs, but they decided to stay in Detroit. So I'm really excited, and I hope that they have a comparable draft to last year because so many rookies, I think there's like five or six rookies on this 2023 team that made an instant impact. If the Lions can draft like that a second time, I think they will have a good shot at actually finishing the deal and getting into the Super Bowl next year and even possibly winning it. But with that being said, I salute the 49ers. I'm really excited for Brock Purdy, who is a story in and of himself. Uh, he was his year of draft. Um, he was Mr. Irrelevant, which basically means that he was drafted as the last pick in the seventh round, so the last pick of the last round, the last pick overall, and they make a big deal about it at the NFL. I think they even give you a trophy, and they label you Mr. Irrelevant, and through a series of events, he found himself the starting quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, and he has taken full advantage of it and become one of the brighter young quarterbacks in the league. And on top of all that, Brock finds his hope and security in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Brock, I will be rooting for you on Super Bowl Sunday. I hope the 49ers take it home and have a good time in Las Vegas. All right, well, I know that the first couple news stories were pretty heavy, and I want it to end with something special. So I found this story by Eric Johnson. As you probably know from listening to me for any length of time, there are basically two human interest people that I watch regularly because they just have really good stories that motivate you and make you feel good and just encourage you in life. And this is one such story. You know that Speaking for Him seeks to uphold the biblical blueprint for marriage and family. And I just feel like this story that I'm about to share with you from Eric Johnson typifies what that means. 
At a home in Bellevue, the car in front has a personalized plate. A couple, it says. And the couple lives inside. Her name is Helen Hesketh, and on this winter day, she was writing a letter. A deeply personal one. She says her handwriting isn't what it used to be, but on she writes. His name is Joe. He's married to Helen, has been for a long time. And as it turns out, he's writing a letter too. The truth is, Joe and Helen are writing love letters to each other. As a high school kid in Rhode Island, Joe worked at a grocery store. He didn't own a car, so he hitchhiked. I came out of work one night, got out in the street, stuck my thumb up, and the first car that stopped was her. I found out long after we were married that she'd been sitting around the corner of the store because she knew I hitchhiked. And she was hoping to be the first car that came along when I came out of work. But I didn't find out that we were married for 20 years, I think, before I heard that story. <laughs> Helen, what do you have to say for yourself? What do you have to say for yourself, young lady? I'm very grateful and thankful that I did that. <laughs> These two might just make you believe in love again, or marriage, or both. But in 1974, 50 long years ago, there was trouble. The two of them had eight children. Joe worked hard, maybe too hard. Helen had almost had enough. I was ready to walk out. You were? I was. He, he didn't know. He was, he was, he was clueless because he was working. <laughs> it was probably because we weren't together hardly at all, because he was working so much. Helen wanted the two of them to go to a Catholic retreat called Marriage Encounter. And so I said, okay, I'll go. On the way in, we weren't talking. We had, <laughs> we had a fight. <laughs> we were not talking. <laughs> Part of the therapy was for the spouses to write each other letters and then discuss the letters. Then they would have us separate, and I would write a note. And he would write a note. They kept those originals. I haven't got my glasses. Is that the original one? To my dearest darling lover, we talk and chat from day to day, but we never feel happy, sad, or satisfied. My dearest darling Helen, it is sad that we have been apart for a while, and I feel so happy that we are on the way back together again. And so we'll be in one another's arms. The exercise did something for Joe and Helen. It changed something. Well, I went to work the week, the day, the first day I went back to work. They said, what happened to you this weekend? I said, I fell in love again. <laughs> Through the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, Joe and Helen kept writing love letters every single day. Thanks for being my superwoman today. I love you. We have to accept each other. We have to accept each other's feelings, and we can talk about them. They wrote them in spiral notebooks, and they kept those notebooks. Twenty years ago, reporter Michelle Esteban visited Helen and Joe, and they were still at it. Your specialness today was your excitement and enthusiasm. My dearest love, your specialness today was your laughter. It's putting us first. That's what it is. Just improved our communication. It's kept us together. It's made us... 
better people. Love you. Along the river of life and love, they floated one letter at a time. Through it all, they became wide-eyed, unabashed romantics. We're known for holding hands. Okay. We hold hands going in and out of church. We hold hands any place we go. And people were known as the hand holders. You guys are both married. When's the last time you just took your wife's hand and held it? None of your business. Okay. And <laughs> <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> Don't put that. I'm the one asking the questions no, no. here. <laughs> Two seventeen. Joe and Helen are both 91 now. In June, they'll have been married for 70 years. Today is the first day of the rest of our lives. Loving kisses always and forever. All my love forever and ever, Joe. And see all those boxes? Each one of them is full of love letters. They've now been writing them for 50 years. The math is easy. More than 36,000 letters, each openly exploring the bond between a man and a woman who decided long ago to work hard at the most important thing in their lives. Some of it's fulfilling, some of it's sad, some of it's, wow, I was like that. <laughs> But it's life. It's life. And we talk about it. So now you got these boxes of letters, notebooks. What happens to those? Good question. <laughs> they both say that a marriage is never a completed work of art, that the shape of the clay is always being altered, so that love is an ever changing thing. Just look at what their commitment has produced. Eight children, 35 grandchildren, 40 great-grandchildren. And 11 boxes crammed full of love. A whole long lifetime of the stuff. There are a couple reasons why I wanted to share this story. First of all, I think it shows you that in order to have a good marriage, you don't have to be perfect. As a matter of fact, admitting your flaws is a great first step to having a successful marriage. One of the things that I really liked about this story was not that they came on and said, we have this 70-year marriage where we never fight, we just love each other, and there's just stars in our eyes the whole time. But rather, they came on and they said, we fought for this marriage because we thought it was going to end. But we realized that it wasn't something to throw away. And they went to a marriage conference and they started writing each other letters and they keep doing it. And I just really appreciate that because commitment is so important in marriage. Our culture shows us that marriage is throwaway. Like, you even have these influencers doing these videos. Like, if we got divorced, what would you take with you? And even asking that question, even having divorce in your vocabulary is not a good thing if you want to keep your marriage together. The other thing is the emphasis on having a spark uh, for your marriage. And what I mean by that is... I do believe that you should be attracted to the person that you marry. Don't get me wrong. But I think that there is so much 
beyond that that makes a good relationship. And I think that a good starting point for a relationship is a friendship. Because you're not going to feel 100% lovey-dovey toward the person that you choose to marry every single day. But if you can have that bedrock of friendship that says no matter what, we are friends and we know that we are better together than we were apart, then that can give you a foundation upon which to build. And you can fan the flames of a spark into a roaring fire of love. I really do believe that. But we have this false belief about love in our culture that says unless I feel head over heels in love with somebody, I'm not even going to consider them for a long-term romantic partner or more importantly, a husband or a wife. And I just, I just feel like we're missing something very important there because it's not about the lovey-doveyness that you feel on any given day um, that makes a marriage work. It's about the commitment that you make for the day in and day out. I've seen my parents go through some horrific things. I know that they don't always feel 100% lovey-dovey, but I also know that they love each other very much. And with the storms that they've weathered, they can be prepared to weather the storms that will come. The other thing I wanted to mention about this story that I thought was so cool is just the act of writing letters. I think this is a lost art in our society today. Um, we have more ways to communicate than we ever have before, and yet in some ways we do less communicating than we ever have before. And so I, I like the idea of having this way not only to communicate well, but also to preserve memories. They have boxes and boxes of letters that they continue to write to one another even though they are married, even though they see each other on a daily basis, it's important for them to keep a record of how they feel about one another and to go through the effort of writing to one another. It takes effort to write a letter. Even in my text messaging, I try to be more deliberate than just a single sentence or a single idea. I try to think through my text messages as if they are those letters. But there's something to be said for the handwritten letter and the message that it communicates because you're actually having to be deliberate about what you say and how you say it. And also with a letter, you have the opportunity to think about and frame your words in a way that you would not with any other medium. So I just really liked that. And I liked the fact that them working through their marriage, even though they had struggles at different points, shows the key to longevity. Again, it's not about the fact that they were just the perfect match for all 70 years and everything went hunky-dory. But rather it was like, this is hard, but we're going to roll up our sleeves and do what we can to make it work. I really appreciated that, and I hope that that encourages you to prioritize your relationships and make sure that you are putting in the effort. This applies across the board. It's not just for romantic relationships either. If you want relationships with anyone, whether it be in your church, whether it be in your neighborhood, whether it be a potential spouse or just, just a friend who is important to you, 
You invest time. That's how you show their importance to you. And incidentally, that's important in our spiritual life as well, because if Jesus is our Savior, if he is our all in all, then we need to spend time with him as well. And as a minister, I have found that it's so important to be fed so that I can feed other people. And I just challenge you to make sure that you are being fed spiritually so that you can feed other people as well. You might not be called to preach, but you still have a sphere of influence that you can preach to with your life. If you're a mom, you have children to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you're a dad, you have children to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and a wife to protect and to wash with the washing of water by the word of God. These are important callings that cannot be neglected if our society is to have any hope of surviving. That's the reality that we live in. All right, well, I really hope that you have enjoyed this broadcast. If you have, please, as I said in the beginning, share it with your family and friends. That's how more people find out about us. Please, if you would, give a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can find the podcasts of Speaking for Him and be benefited by the encouragement they offer. I so appreciate each and every one of you who has invested in this ministry, either by prayer or finances or some other way of encouragement. I am so grateful because even though the Speaking for Him ministry is primarily my speaking and my podcasting, I could not do it without the help of so many others. Which leads me to the fact that I want to applaud my web guy, Jay Harnish, for so many years of designing and redesigning my website. Um, I've recently made a transition to Squarespace and just set up a brand new website still at speakingforhim.com. I would encourage you to surf on over there, check it out. Please let me know if I can be of service to your Christian group or church. I would really like to see you in some capacity in 2024. Jay is going to continue to host my website on his server, and I'm so grateful for his service to Speaking for Him for all these years. I could not do what I do without you, Jay, and I'm so very thankful for you. So again, check out www.speakingforhim.com and you can access my blog and my audio over there. All of the audio clips that I share on this podcast or on the Speaking For Him podcast are always available at speakingforhim.blogspot.com. With all of this being said, I will simply end by saying, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, 
H-I-M. You can also interact with us at Facebook.com slash Speaking For Him and on Twitter at Speaking For Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 